After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's take a second and pray and ask God and invite God to help us as we look at this chapter together. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would be gracious and kind enough to us that you would send your Holy Spirit to come and be at work here. Lord, we believe that when your word is read, when your word is thought about, and when your word is believed, lives are changed, people are transformed, sin is ceased, and righteousness flourishes. So God, will you help that take place this morning? We are completely and in every way dependent upon you today for anything good to happen in our lives. And so we ask that you would be at work for our good through this story, that you would remind us of the kind of God that you are and of how kind and gracious you are to each one of us and how when you make promises, you indeed will always keep them. So help us to believe that no matter where we're coming from today spiritually. Help us to acknowledge that you are gracious and that the door to acceptance with you is open through Jesus May we walk through by faith today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
I once heard another pastor uh, describe Abraham's story, the life of Abraham, something like this. God comes to Abraham and tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave your family and your homeland. And Abraham says, why God? And God says, I'll tell you later. And then God says, Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham says, where, God? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just go. And then Abraham is told by God, I'm going to give you a son. And you're going to be a father of a great nation. And all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And Abraham says, when, God? And God says, I'll tell you later. And then... After he finally does have a son, as we'll see in the coming weeks, God says, Abraham, I want you to kill your son. To which Abraham responds, why, God? And God says, just do it, I'll tell you later. Abraham's life is a life that is, in large part, made up with waiting. Waiting for God to do what he has told Abraham he will do. Waiting for God to keep his promises. You feel like your life with God is like that? You feel like that you're stuck in a holding pattern that really is nothing but waiting on God. Waiting on God to fulfill his promises to you. Waiting on God to make himself known to you perhaps for the first time. Waiting on God's blessing. Waiting on God to do what he says he will do. I think that most of us, if we're Christ followers, find ourselves in that position quite often. And let me tell you, you're in good company. That's often the story of the life of those who are with Jesus. That's the story of many Christians throughout the scripture. It's Abraham's story. You might even say it's a basic pattern in the Christian life. And this morning we're going to see that Abraham hears again from God. He he receives God's confirmation of God's promises to him. But Abraham is struggling. He's struggling with assurance. He's struggling with believing that God is really going to do these things because they seem to be extraordinary. They seem to be impossible, even. And he's struggling in the larger context of his faith, of his journey with God, but he is struggling in a real way nonetheless. And yet, God, in this story, continues to speak his word to Abraham and to remind Abraham that he is going to do what he has promised through visible signs and seals in Abraham's life. And we see how God's grace continues to transpire here in Abraham's story. And also, as we think about this text, we'll see how God's grace is at work right now in our story, in the struggles and the waiting patterns that we find ourselves in, no matter what they may be. Really, this chapter, Genesis 15, which, by the way, is one of the highlights, not just of Abraham's story, but of the whole Bible. And it's a weird chapter. As you read it, you might have been like, I'm not sure what this means. We'll get to that in a second. But just trust me when I say that this is one of the pinnacles of really all of the Old Testament. And what's happening here is God is reconfirming the promises that he has already made to Abraham. You can divide the story into two big parts, verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 21. It's two encounters that Abraham has with God. And in each encounter, we read about God giving a promise or re-giving a promise, Abraham struggling with assurance, and then God confirming the promise with a visual sign. So what we're going to do this morning together is take a couple of minutes and look at these two encounters that Abraham has with the living God. And here's how to divide it up. First, we'll see that God gives and confirms his promise of a son to Abraham, verses 1 through 6. And then the remainder of the chapter, we'll see that God gives and confirms his promise of a land 
to Abraham. So those are the two points. He gives and confirms his promise of a son, and he gives and confirms his promise of a land. And so as we look at these two encounters, I want you to just perhaps take a second right now and pray silently and ask God to open your heart and your mind to believe these things and to apply them to your hearts this morning, no matter what's going on in your life, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just take a second right now and do that. So we see first that God gives and confirms his promise of a son to Abraham. Look with me in the first couple of verses. Abraham's just come out of this battle and he's met with these two kings and then God speaks to him in a vision and says, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. And we read in verse five that he says, I'm going to give you your own son. You are going to be the father of a great nation. Look at the stars. That's how many children and grandchildren and descendants you are going to have, Abraham. This is the third time that God has made a promise like this to Abraham. We saw God speak to him in this way in chapter 12. We saw God speak to him this way in chapter 13. And we see him speak to him with this gracious, radical promise again here in chapter 15. So God reconfirms the promise of a son. But we see that Abraham is struggling. He's struggling. Look at what he says to God. Verse 2, God, what will you give me? I am childless. Right now, the heir of my house is a Syrian slave, Eliezer. Abraham says, you've given me no children. Verse 3, a member of my household is going to be my heir. Now remember, childlessness in that day and age was seen as an unmitigated disaster. Now, Abraham is an extremely wealthy man. He's an extremely blessed man. And yet his great shame and the great shame of his wife, Sarah, at this point in their lives is that they are without child. And they're also old. They aren't spring chickens anymore. And Abraham looks at himself and Abraham looks at Sarah and he says, God, I want to believe and I do believe, but when? How? What's going on? It's been some time at this point since God initially made his promise to Abraham. And now we see that Abraham is questioning God. And it's very important for you to see that Abraham's questioning of God comes in the larger context of Abraham's faith in God. Abraham's doubts play out on the canvas of his trust. We need to see that Abraham is not so much struggling with faith here as he's struggling with assurance. How do we know that? Well, verse 6 tells us, for one, that Abraham believed God. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But even more significantly, perhaps, is the fact that in the story of the Bible, when people question God in a context of unbelief, it typically doesn't go well (laughs) for that person. God typically will rebuke and discipline that person in love. A great example of that is in the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. We read about Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, and we read about her husband, Zachariah. And they're going to be the parents of John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel comes to them and says, you're going to have a son. But Elizabeth is an old woman, and Zachariah doesn't believe. In fact, he doesn't even begin to believe. He questions God's word to him in the context of unbelief. And what happens? In an act of fatherly discipline, God strikes Zechariah mute, which I'm sure at times his wife was happy about, in the context throughout the whole pregnancy. And, and when Zechariah was able to speak again at the end of Elizabeth's pregnancy, he then believed. So God 
judges, as it were, in a loving and fatherly way, Zechariah's unbelief. But we don't see that here with Abraham's questioning of God, which leads us to believe that Abraham is questioning God in a, as it were, in a faithful way. And God responds to him graciously and gives him a sign to bolster his assurance. Think about that with me for a moment. Maybe ask yourself, what is it in your life that makes you wonder what God is up to? Where in your life do you need assurance that God is going to bless you? Don't those issues crop up all the time for us? Um, I mean, if you find yourself here this morning, I have no doubt that there are questions in your life where you're wondering what God is doing. God, why am I undergoing such great suffering right now? God, why is my marriage so difficult right now? Why are my children disobeying right now? Why am I so tired of my parents right now, God? God, why am I depressed and lonely when you say that you want me to be in community and fellowship? God, if you are for me and not against me, why can't I find a job that I like? Why do I hate the work that you've called me to do? God, I want to believe the Bible. Why can't I find faith in it? Why why do parts of it just not sit well with me and I find them so hard to accept? Those are just a few examples of the questions we might have of God. And I want you to hear that, again, that is basic to the experience of the Christ follower. If you have those kinds of conversations with yourself, then, you know, in a sense, I want to just say, welcome to Christianity. I mean, that's in large part what Christianity is. It's normal, not abnormal, to have those kinds of conversations with God. Listen, Abraham's story teaches us here, among other things, that it is legitimate to take our our lack of assurance, to take our doubts to God and ask him why, like Abraham did here, as long as it is set in the larger context of faith, you see. Maybe think about it this way. True faith in God makes room for asking real questions of God. God is not insecure so that your real questions of assurance and doubt are going to like bother him. And he's like, you know what? I told you I will do it. I'll do it. Just be quiet. God is secure. (laughs) I think it's safe to say in his promises towards you. He, He can handle your doubts. And it's okay for you to bring your larger doubts and questions and fears and worries to him in the broader context of a faith-saturated life. I've heard Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, say this. If you knew all that God knows, you would not have the same questions and doubts that you do now. If you knew all that God knows, you would not have have the same questions and doubts that you do now. I find that to be true and comforting. And that's one thing we can take from Abraham's story. So Abraham struggles with assurance, and then we see that God confirms his promise with this visual sign in verse 5. Look at what happens. He brings Abraham outside, and he says, look up, right? Look towards the heavens. Look at the stars. Try to count them. This was before the day of smog, I suppose. And so there's plenty of stars in the sky. And Abraham visually sees a depiction of what God has promised to him. He says, you will indeed have a son. Eliezer is not your heir. And your son is going to have a son. And your son's son is going to have children. And eventually your descendants will number as much as the stars that you're looking at right now. Just reflect on that 
with me. If you would, just for a second, think about this. We know that this promise comes true. In fact, we are the proof that this promise comes true. Those who believe in Jesus are the children of Abraham, we read in Galatians chapter 3. Listen, Abraham here is wondering about having one son. And God reminds him that he will have an uncountable multitude descend from him. Listen, God always has in mind far greater things than our relatively minor and insignificant worries can fathom. God promises to us far more than we can ask or imagine. Not only will he assure us that he will overcome the things or the issues that we doubt, but he will do vastly greater things still. Whatever you're worried about, whatever is causing you strain and stress, whatever is keeping you up late at night or waking you up early in the morning, whatever is on your mind when you're getting ready for your day and when you're ending your day, whatever is causing you fear, doubt, or worry, listen, the living God of the universe will overcome and overwhelm those things and do more good for you than you can possibly consider right now. Nothing that is happening to you is not meant for your ultimate good and satisfaction in God himself. Who would not want to serve and love a God that is like that? You know, who would not want to believe and trust in a God like that? That's what Abraham does. God tells him, go look at the stars. That's how many children you're going to have. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And we read in verse 6 that Moses, the author, inserts this sort of narrator comment. He says, Abraham believed the Lord, Yahweh, and God counted that faith to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham takes God at his word. This verse is of paramount importance for the writers of the New Testament especially the apostle Paul. He uses this verse a number of times in his letters to argue for justification by faith and not by works. And we read here that Abraham has righteousness, right standing before God, counted towards him or credited to him, not because he's been a good little boy, not because he's earned it, not because he's proven to God his merits religiously, but because he has believed. It is his faith that causes him to be counted righteous. God sees Abraham not as a sinner, but as just, as in good standing, despite his sins, because Abraham has trusted God. And just really quickly as a side note, the same is true for you and for me. The gospel tells us, the core of Christianity tells us that in order to be pardoned, in order to be seen by God as innocent and indeed as righteous, all we must do is trust or believe God, just like Abraham does here. We must believe that God himself pays the debt that our rebellion against him incurs through the death of Jesus on the cross. But more on that in a moment. For now, I want you to see that God re-promises a son to Abraham. Abraham questions and God 
confirms it through a sign. We see the same thing taking place in the second encounter. Beginning in verse 7, God gives and confirms his promise of a land to Abraham. Look at that verse with me. God said to Abraham, I am the Lord. I brought you out of your, own, your old home, Ur of the Chaldeans, and I gave you this land that you're walking on right now to possess. Again, that's a recounting of the promise that God has already made to Abraham on multiple occasions at this point. And again, we see in verse 8 that Abraham is struggling. In verse 6, he believes God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. In verse 8, though, in the context of that belief, he can still say, God, how am I to know? How am I to know that I'm going to possess this land? I mean, think about it. Abraham's looking around. And he's saying, you know, I've got a lot of money. I've got a lot, of, a lot of flocks and herds, a lot of people. But I'm a nomad. I'm a wanderer. I'm a pilgrim. And, and this land that God's promised, as I look around, you know what I see? I see a lot of well-fortified cities with armies and with leaders and with weapons. How is this land going to be mine? God, I mean, I believe you. I love you. I trust you. I'm having a hard time seeing this right now. It's the same sort of struggle that we saw that he had with regards to his promise of a son. How will I know that I'm going to possess it? And again, we see that God responds to him graciously. And it's a little bit strange, of course, what happens there in verse 9 through 11. It's strange to us anyway, but it would have made total sense to Abraham. Let me talk about that in just a second, but I want you to see first that in verses 12 through 16, God reconfirms a promise. And in fact, he says, your children are going to possess this land, but it's going to be a while, namely 400 years. (laughs) Again, patience is the name of the game for Abraham. By the way, this is not on the script, but I'm going to do it anyway. Can you live with God when he says, I promise you these things, but you're not going to receive them in this lifetime? Can you believe that God is good enough and trustworthy enough to live in a perpetual waiting game for his promises to reach their fulfillment? Because really all of us have to do that. If we're going to follow Jesus, the fulfillment of all the promises that he made awaits Jesus' return. So that is a pattern again of the Christian life. But God reconfirms his promise to Abraham. He says, this land will be yours. It will be your descendants, but not until after 400 years of affliction in Egypt, right? Not until I bring judgment on the nations that they serve and bring them back out of there. So a prophecy here of what's going to happen in the Exodus is what's taking place. But God, again, gives this sign, a visual confirmation. You might call this a sacramental act here to confirm to Abraham his promise. And we read about it there in verses 9 through 11. He says, bring me these animals, a three-year-old heifer, three-year-old goat, three-year-old ram, etc., etc., etc. And then I want you to cut them in half, lay each half over against the other, creating sort of a, a pathway of, you know, mutilated animal carcasses. Lovely, lovely Old Testament stuff here. And, and then when the birds of prey come, swat the birds away. We don't need birds messing around with my animal carcasses. And so Abraham does it. And um, that sounds weird to us. But, but you need to know that this was something that Abraham would have immediately understood. What this is, is a covenant ratification ceremony. A fun word is self-maledictory oath. That's what's taking place here. You can use that in dinner table discussion at your leisure. Um, if two kings in the ancient world, for example, made a pact 
with each other, a covenant with each other. They would tear apart these animals and set up a similar sort of pathway, and then both kings would walk through. And in that act, they are visually demonstrating this promise. They're saying, if I don't keep the promises that I'm making in the stipulations of this covenant, may I be rent apart like these animals have been. May this happen to me if I don't keep my promises. We know that's what's happening here because of later confirmation in the Old Testament. In the prophecy of Jeremiah, later in the Old Testament, we read this. I've got it on the screen. Throw that up if you would. Jeremiah 34. This is God speaking, and he says this. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. A lovely picture. But confirmation that that's exactly what's taking place here. It's a covenant ratification ceremony. You know, as a pastor, I have the privilege from time to time to officiate in weddings. And every time I officiate in a wedding, we do the wedding and the bride and the groom make public promises, right? They make vows to one another with witnesses there. And then after the wedding, at the reception, um, I have to find the bride and the groom and track them down, which sometimes is a difficult thing to do, and tell them to stop having fun and celebrating for a moment, find a couple of witnesses, and sign what? The marriage certificate, the marriage license, right? That's a similar idea here. They are attesting to the promises that they have publicly made before witnesses. This is very similar, although it's much cooler and much bloodier (laughs) than a marriage license. They're saying, may I be torn in two if I don't do the things that I'm promising to do in this oath. So what happens in the story? We see that God calls Abraham to set up just such a covenant-making ceremony. He does it. He does what he's told, verses 9 through 11. But then the story twists. God puts Abraham into a deep sleep, verse 12, just like he had done earlier in the first encounter. And he gives him another vision. And in this vision, God repeats the promises to Abraham And he specifies and elaborates on them. And then in verse 17, we see a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. Now, those are symbolic of God himself. That word flaming torch is the same word in the Hebrew language that's used, for example, in the Exodus. When God is leading Israel out of Egypt with a pillar of fire by night. Same word. So this is a sign of the presence of God walking through these torn pieces. But even more important than that, even more important than what is there is what is not there. Don't miss this. Abraham does not walk through. Did you catch that? God alone by himself takes the oath. God by himself walks through. Abraham's asleep. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that this is a unilateral, a unilateral covenant. 
This is a one-way deal. What's going on here is this. This is a story. This is a way of God showing us that he will keep his promises even when we break ours. God is saying here that he will do what he promises and then he will bear our punishment for failing to do what we promise. To describe the covenant that God makes here in a word is to describe it like this. This is a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of grace. Do you believe that about God? Listen, the real God and the only God binds himself to rescue people and bring people life. And then he keeps that promise even when we break it. In any other contract, in any other covenant or pact, when one party breaks his or her end of the deal, the covenant is annulled. It no longer stands. It's been broken. And furthermore, the party that has offended the covenant faces the stipulations or the consequences laid out in the very terms of the covenant. That's the whole point of this self-maledictory oath. That's the normal way of doing things. But that is not Christianity. That is not what God does. That is not the gospel. Here's the gospel. God holds up his end of the deal and our end of the deal. Do you see the lavish and costly grace of God for people here? That is who the real God is. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that your failures do not ruin you because God is gracious. It means that the shame and the scorn that you heap on yourself deep in the caverns of your own heart, I can't believe what a mess up I am. I can't believe how big of a screw up I've been. I can't believe what a loser I am. Those thoughts are never, ever the way that God thinks of you because God is gracious. This means that your guilt, real and significant though it is, is completely removed. And not by you facing the pain of being torn apart by God, but by God being torn apart in your place because God is gracious. This means that you can always come to God and know without shadow of a doubt that he will accept you. No matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, no matter what you have thought, no matter who you are. Grace means that you are fully and completely acceptable to God because God has done everything necessary to keep his end of the covenant and your end of the covenant. Abraham is dead asleep as he watches God pass through. We are all dead asleep, unable to fulfill the end of the deal that is set out for us. We can only watch God pass through saying, I will do what I've promised and I will bear the curse for you not doing what you are called to do by virtue of being my creature, by virtue of being my servant. 
Grace means that God loves you and delights in you always because he has done all that is necessary to keep the relationship between you and him together. He kept his promises and then punished himself because of our failure to keep our promises. Only only the gospel of the Christian faith tells us such a radically world-altering thing. Only the real God, not the gods of religion that we love to concoct, that are waiting for us to mess up so that they can shoot us down with the proverbial divine bolt of lightning. Only the real God acts in a way that is this radically and rampantly merciful. Do you believe that God is like that? Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you believe that the only requirement necessary for you to be pardoned of all of your failures and seen as completely clean and righteous before an infinitely holy God is that you believe that God has done this for you in Jesus? If you can't see the radical nature of that, then you have not yet understood Christianity. If you can't see what that's all about, then you can't expect to experience change for the better in your own life either. Let me just wrap up by saying this. Um, If you can accept the grace of God for you by believing this sort of thing to be true, that God bears your failures and your punishment, that he takes the curse for you in the cross, in the death of Jesus, if you can believe that, then it will change you. It will change you in radical ways. It will really do for you what it did for Abraham. Over a lifetime of ups and downs, there is an abiding faith and selflessness and generosity that can only be of God, that can only be of his love for you. If you can believe that God is willing and in fact has done these things for someone like you, then you can believe that he can change you in any other way imaginable as you walk through the journey of life. John Steinbeck, in uh, his, perhaps his magnum opus, The Grapes of Wrath, although I like East of Eden better, but that's a debate for another sermon. In The Grapes of Wrath, um, he has a number of small kind of inter-chapters in between the larger narrative um, that give vignettes of life in the Great Depression uh, where the book is set and in the migration of settlers in places like Oklahoma to California. And by the way, it's still true today that no one wants to live in Oklahoma when you can go to California. So Steinbeck is on to a deep truth there. Sorry for all you Oklahomans that I've offended. There's grace for me for offending you. But never mind. The point is this. Um, One of these famous inner stories, I think, illustrates the point well that when we can get this idea of grace, it will begin to change us. Um, Steinbeck describes a, a migrant family on their way out of Oklahoma on the way to the West that stops into this diner. And, uh, the owners of the diner are this couple named Al and May. They're an old sort of um, rigid couple that have no business for messing around or anything like that. And they're in there working and the migrant dad and his two young sons walk in. And the dad asks May if she will sell him a loaf of bread for a dime. And she says, this ain't a grocery store. We got bread to make sandwiches. And the father responds, I know, ma'am. But we're hungry and we can't afford sandwiches. We've got to make do on a dime. And May holds out. She says, if I sell you bread, we're going to run out. You can't get no loaf of bread for a dime. We only have 15 cent loaves. 
And then from behind her, her husband Al groans, God Almighty may just give him bread. And she continues to protest. We'll run out before the bread truck comes. And Al says, run out then. And so May goes and opens a drawer and uh, pulls out a loaf of bread and says, this here is a 15-cent loaf. And the dad responds, won't you see your way to cut off 10 cents worth? And then Al says, May, give him the loaf. The man reaches into his pocket for a dime, and as he pulls the dime out, a penny falls to the floor along with the dime. And then the man notices his two boys are standing in front of the glass candy case. (laughs) And and Steinbeck here, in his genius, um, writes that the boys were staring into the candy case like this, not with craving or with hope or even with desire, but just with a kind of wonder that such things could be. And the dad is about to drop the penny back into his pocket, but then he sees his boys. And, and he turns and he asks May, how much is them sticks of peppermint candy? Is there candy for a penny in there? And May says, who was unwilling to give him a 15-cent loaf for 10 cents, she responds at this point, no, them's not penny candy. Those are two for a penny. And so the boys, you know, they had stopped breathing by this point, as May answers. And the dad says, okay. And Steinbeck describes them walking out of the story with the boys holding their sticks of candy down at their sides, you know, not even able to look at them. And they get in their old car and drive off. And as the family is driving off, one of the regulars sitting at the bar of the diner looks over at May and says, May, those pieces of candy ain't for two, a two for a cent? And she says, you don't worry about that. Mind your own business. And the scene closes. I I love that story. It's a picture of how, even beneath a gruff exterior, when people see the lavishness of grace and experience the joy of generosity, it begins to affect and impact them in a way that makes them generous, that makes them gracious. When you can see the lavishness of God's grace and generosity to you, in fulfilling the demands that he's placed upon you himself, which you could never fulfill on your own, then, in turn, you begin to extend grace and generosity to others. And in that way, honor and glorify the Lord who sacrificed himself for your sake. We see that in the life of Abraham. We see that in our life. The grace of God is able to change everything. Let's pray.